Hey, I'm Kenny Aronoff, and I'm on Musicians on the Record here with Dave, and I want you to know that you have to hit it. Welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward. You've heard the music, now hear their story. And you have definitely heard this guy's music. Legendary drummer Kenny Aronoff is on the show today. Former drummer for John Mellencamp. He still plays with John Fogarty, Melissa Etheridge. He has played with just about everybody in the business. There's so many fun stories that we're going to talk about with Kenny today. It's incredible. Kenny's been voted one of the top 100 drummers of all time by Rolling Stone. That is high praise, and he certainly lives up to it. We got a chance to talk with Kenny again. He was telling us stories about playing with Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, working with Don Waz, Neil Peart, Dave Weckl, all kinds of incredible stuff. Chicken Foot, being on the David Letterman show. This is going to be a lot of fun today, talking with Kenny Aronoff. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. If this is the first time you're joining us, welcome. We'd invite you to subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to watch these interviews, they all live on our YouTube page, Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, and on our website at musiciansontherecord.com. We'd love to hear which musician story you most want to see and hear. Let us know in the comments. And we'll try our best to get those folks on for you. All right, let's get right to it. Here's my time with Kenny Aronoff. Thank you so much. Uh, well, the last one was in 2017, and it's 2018. Yeah. So it's it's like starting over. That's right. That's right. Did you have a good year in 2017? I was wondering. And, and I wondered musically, what was the top one or two highlights for you in 2017? Yeah, I had a very, very good year. Uh, one of the biggest things that would be different in my life was uh, my autobiography, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, came out, which had told my whole life story. Um, and then, um, I mean, actually, the highlight, one of the highlights that was unique was I got asked to play with Jerry Lee Lewis in his club on New Year's Eve on Beale Street in Memphis. And, I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis uh, was revered is revered by almost every rock and roll i mean art uh, the greatest rock and roll musician will revere uh, so much to him because he he created one of the guys that created rock and roll i mean keith richards has a big picture of jerry lee lewis in his dressing room every night um you know jimmy page was uh just idolized him uh johnny cash elvis uh little richard uh carl perkins um all the all these incredible rockers just uh, respect him as the godfather because uh, he had something that was so unique and different from everybody else. And he was really one of the initiators of rock and roll. And when I play with him, my, his piano, the low keys are facing towards me because he's sideways. It's his low keys, his amplifier, and my bass drum. That's how close I am to him. And the first – I did one show prior to New Year's. Um, I was asked to uh, – 
to do it with no rehearsal, no set list, uh, no count off, nothing. He just starts playing, you fall in. And the way I, like when I went to sound check, I, I looked at a sheet of paper. They had told me to learn 15 songs. There were 40 songs on the sheet of paper. And I went, what? what are you kidding me? I only learned 15. And they, and then they said, well, how, how does this work? He says, well, you just fall in. So between sound check with the, the, the other two musicians without him, I went home and I started doing this thing where I would start us. I, I took the YouTube versions of his songs and I would start them without knowing what the title was. I didn't worry about the title. All I worried was knowing to come in stylistically, whether it was country, whether it was swing, whether it was straight, didn't matter. And his, his arrangements change on the spot every night and his endings change on the spot every night. It was an incredible experience. Um, the feel that he has is nobody in the whole world that can play like that. Nobody between shuffle and swing. He's doing both and singing somewhere in the middle. It's, it's unbelievable. So that was a, a, one of the big highlights and, you know, uh, still touring with John Fogarty, uh, doing a lot of great TV shows with Don was a Merle Haggard tribute in, uh, Nashville. Um, at the, um, what do they call it? Not the brickyard, the brick, brickstone. Uh, arena and then we did um, a Kenny Rogers tribute and I mean these tributes I get to play with people like Keith Richards and Lionel Richie and and Don Henley and uh Reba McIntyre the Judds um Billy Gibbons um um Kenny Chesney let's see uh there's uh, uh Loretta Lynn I mean you know I mean uh, Dolly Parton Kenny Rogers um it's it's just unbelievable to play with the greatest musicians ever um and so these tv events are, are, are one of my you know most important things i do uh, throughout the year right and, and all of your experience must come into play your education your your playing in bars to stadiums all of that must come into play when playing with somebody like jerry lee lewis right well the thing was a guy playing with jerry if he didn't like you he'd just tell you to leave i mean there's no there's no mess around you can't just because you play drums doesn't mean you can play stylistically with a guy like that. Cause the way I, he was, it was explained to me, this guy is so deep and not psychic, but he, he feels vibe so well. He either likes you or he doesn't, or he likes the way you play. Or you don't because he knows, you know, he's been around, you know, he's been around. Right. He's 82. Um, you know, and, and when I was a young kid, I used to get, you know, not teased, but people would sort of give me a hard time. So I was trying to play every style of music. I, I wasn't try. It wasn't an actual thing I was trying to do. Like I'm going to learn how to play every style of music. It's just I keep getting hired to play different styles of music. And when I got hired to play an R&B, I tried to be the best R&B drummer I could be. Listen to R&B when it was fusion. The same thing when it was you know serious country like with Johnny Cash or Willie Nelson or George Jones or people like that. I learned how to play country music authentically. When it was jazz, the same thing. I studied and practiced jazz. You know, tried to be, you know, I studied all the greats, Alvin Jones, you know, Buddy, Buddy Rich, uh, Joe Jones, Philly Joe Jones, Connie Kay, you know, on and on and on and on. Um, and so what has happened at this point in my life that I, I have, uh, you know, I've learned a little bit about a lot of styles of music. So when I get in a situation where it calls for that, I'm not just a rock drummer that can 
you know, just plays rock style music. On the other hand, that is my specialty. But I mean, I remember one week, one week I recording with Cinderella, the Buddy Rich Big Band, and Hank Jr. All in one week. You know, I mean, they're, and they're significantly different stylistically. That's right. You know? yeah. But knowing all those different styles of music, every musician that I've talked to so far has said, I mean, that helps pay the bills because you never know which gig is coming down the road. And that's yeah, I mean, it's good to make it in one style of music. So some people so people know who you are. But but once you do that, you get pigeonholed. And that's what happened with me when I got in the Mellencamp band and we got Grammy Award winning records and hits. And I was the rock drummer that played less is more kind of like in a Charlie Watts style with power. And then but as it wasn't until John Mellencamp decided to take some time off that I was, you know, uh, had to make a move. And I got into being a session player and I was fortunate to get into the recording world when there were huge budgets and people would fly me all over the world just even for one song i mean i remember flying from at the last minute i had the last minute call i flew from indiana i'd have two tubes of snare drums like eight with me fly you know first class get the rental car stay at the nicest hotel get a, a nice car you know per diem and i walk but when that particular day i landed i took off at seven thirty, landed in like L.A. at 10.30 or 11, went right to the studio to record uh, with Rod Stewart. And we were doing a cover of a Tom Petty song. And as I walked in, I ran into a producer that eventually hired me two weeks later to record the Melissa Etheridge record. Wow. And that record led me to touring with her and making records for 10 years. I mean, that was all within one moment. And, and that was the beauty of back then was that there was everybody was everywhere. I'd be making a record of Motley Crue and you too would be in the next couple of rooms. I'd be playing and it would be J.R. Robinson in one room and, and uh, Jeff Beccaro in another room. I mean, it was, it was just, that's the way it was. So um, that was an incredible uh, time. And, you know, where you could break. And then I was getting more, I was getting called to do more and more different uh, diverse styles of music with different artists. So in one week I could be playing with BB King and Bonnie Ray. I did for an era America doing a Dr. John song. Must've been the right place, but the wrong time with BB King, Bonnie Ray. Next day was Elton John for two days. And then next four days was Bob Seeger. And then it was like Iggy Pop and Bob Dylan. I mean, and then it could be Michelle. Brand. I mean, it just jumped all over the place. That's amazing. And, now and reading, reading was a huge component. I'll have to say reading has made it possible for me. Like I'm working right now on uh, Music Harris, which is a show that is the day before the Grammys. It's a, it, you raise money for, uh, you know, musicians uh, that are, you know, recovering or tr they're trying to help people recover from, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol or they're just down out broke. And, and it's very expensive to go there, but the whole, it's the industry type of event. This year we'll be honoring Fleetwood Mac. So I don't have time to memorize all these songs. So I write them out. That's amazing. That was and one. So that's one song. That's like secondhand news. I have tempos from three different, um, you know, two YouTubes and the record. So I'm prepared 
for every possibility. And, you know, but meanwhile, I'm, I'm working on other sessions and I'm working on other projects that I'm doing. And if I couldn't read music, this, it'd be impossible for me to take on so much. And I, I want to hear more about Music Cares, too, because it sounds like an amazing organization. And for me as a therapist, and I cut my teeth in addiction oh, cool. counseling, um, that sounds very cool. What you just showed us, though, last time I was amazed by you, you sort of have your own uh, shorthand uh, for writing a song. I wouldn't call that shorthand. That's exact hand. Every note. It's not short. It's exact. Is it? I mean. It's really just, it's it's fairly standard, except what I do that a lot of books do differently is I keep the hi-hat or the ride symbol on its own line on top. Okay. And then I put the kick and snare together. Okay. Because my eye likes to see, you know, let me pick another one. My eye likes to see the kick drum. See, this is Gypsy. So my eye likes to see the kick drum and the snare go together. And the I hat or ride symbol on top and crash symbol. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And so that's just the whole song right there. That's Gypsy. Every, every note, I, I essentially, if I were to be called to play right now and record, that version I could do from top to bottom without sight reading it. Wow. How did you I, and I've done that. I can go to my studio. Somebody sends me files. I will write out. A chart of I ask for the version that they they um, program. Usually everybody is programmed something, so I give them that first, and I can sight read. I'll give them, and every take I give them a little bit different, a little bit more, but it's all related, so they can pick and choose what they want. Amazing. Did you start that process from the beginning uh, with your drumming and education, or is it something you got into over time writing the whole song? No, I, I was just a self-taught drummer. I couldn't read music at all. But when it was time to go to college, and in my family, everyone went to college. There were no schools of rock back then, so my only option was to study classical music. And I'd been taking lessons from the percussionist from the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and he was forcing me to learn timpani and mallets and and theory and it, it was painful and it, I didn't love it but I, I just intuitively knew it was good for me and for five years in college I basically was just busting my ass trying to catch up to everybody else and kind of like the tortoise that you know they were more talented and more developed percussionists I eventually crossed the line victorious I I would be practicing timpani when I started with Vic Firth his lessons were so intense, nicest guy in the world, but there was no room for mistakes. If you made a mistake, you get one chance to fix it. If you're not, you're done with that page. And I would practice five hours a day for that guy in the summer, five hours a day on timpani, all the different techniques, reading, tonality, intonation, phrasing. And, and you know, I mean, I won a marimba concerto by the time I was a senior at Indiana University. I couldn't even play marimba until I was 18. I never even saw one. And it was just putting in hard work and discipline. All that taught me how to read. When I got out of college and I decided not to go to the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra, which I'd been accepted at, I decided I was going to study drum set full time. And so I started practicing eight hours a day, studying with two teachers. One was Alan Dawson, a great jazz drummer, a teacher at the Berkeley School of Music. And then the other one was Gary Chester, who wrote The New, New Breed. And I lived right between the two of them. I'd drive two and a half hours to each one of them. 
and I'd practice eight hours a day. And that's when I started to transcribe what everybody else was playing. And that's where I learned how to, uh, you know, I came up with my own way of writing. And then I would try to write every single note so I could study what Steve Gadd was doing, what Vinnie Caliuta was doing, what Steve Smith was doing, what Billy Cobham was doing, what Elvin Jones was doing. I mean, it, it just was a process. And the big, big education with reading was I was on tour with Melissa Etheridge. I had nine hours of rehearsal to learn a three-hour show. And I had no time to practice it because I was recording 12 hours a day. So all I could do is read. And so for three weeks while I was on the road, I was reading this show and playing. And Melissa turned around one night and said, you know, I can tell when you're reading and when you're not. I went, that's not good. So that's when I took it to the next level where when I read, I step out of my body and observe the drummer as if I'm the producer in the band observe the drummer is that drummer playing in the band correctly how does the band sound what can the drummer do since i have control of the drummer to make it sound better so i learned how to step out when it just the bottom lines never sound like you're reading <laughs> and so what was that adjustment that you needed to make to change that kenny i just stepped out of my body i just listened to myself uh, uh, with an observation when I play, I play, what I try to do is get into this thing they call the flow state. I try to flow, let it all happen. If you practice something over and over and over and over again, you, like, for example, you don't think about how to walk. You just walk. What I do when I drum is that's what I want to do because that's when I sound the best, when it's flowing. But I keep one foot or part of my brain in the immediate state and as much as I can in the flow state. So if something goes wrong is a problem or you have to identify there's a problem first of all a more of my consciousness goes to that immediate thing to fix that uh, make it work and then i put myself more uh, go back to the flow state i never leave the flow state i never leave that grounded state let's call it but i will you take the percentage 100 percent being a full glass of water i'll shift the percentage to fixing a problem and then when it's fixed, I go back to flow state. That's how I describe the way I play. <laughs> well, <laughs> well the, w the way I met Bill Clinton, and as I stated in the book, was uh, I was doing a, um, a show at the Ford Theater, which is where Abraham Lincoln got shot. And um, I was doing it one year with John Bon Jovi. And it's, uh, it was like that, that theater is only seats 200 people at the most. I mean, where Anna Lincoln got shot was right there, you know. And uh, not very far from the stage. And at the end of the show, it's a variety show. So you have different types of talent there, actors, jugglers, comedians, and the rock band. And at the end, we all get on stage, all of us, in a sort of a slight semicircle. And the president and the first lady walk down and shake our hands. And that's usually where the credits roll. Makes it look very eloquent and professional. Um, the next year, I did it again. The next year. Uh, with John Fogarty. Well, this meeting the president was a, I mean, I've met everybody, but this was extraordinary. I was a, definitely very blown away. And may I add, it was the peak of the Monica Lewinsky investigation. So Ken Starr had, he was deep, digging deep on Bill. And so when he went by me, I was like, just shook his hand. He's really nice, really smiles, really friendly, just you, like you'd expect. And then he went to David Copperfield and somebody else, and he came back to us. 
And that's why I jumped in and said, I couldn't help myself. I was so excited to talk to him. And I had a message. And the message was, I'd just been in LA recording and I'd just been in New York City recording. And I, everybody had told me in those places, they wanted me to tell Bill Clinton that they, they loved him, support him, dug him, love, 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 all that stuff. And when I told him that, man, he grabbed my hand, grabbed my forearm, pulled me in real close, didn't talk in my ear, looked me right in the eye and said, you know, they've been trying to get me out of office for six years. It ain't going to happen. I mean, he said it again. And I was like, I cannot believe we had that kind of conversation. I looked over his shoulder and there's, you know, the, <laughs> essentially it felt like I had 80 red dots on me. Like, and they were like, take them out. <laughs> I was probably the most watched person at that second on the entire planet because what I found out when I was there with Bon Jovi, I went flying off the stage into this old building. And I went into the wrong room. And then that room, I thought it was a staircase, were about 10 like Navy SEAL looking guys with necks this big, just completely armored up. Mm. And they weren't smiling. It looked like smoke. It looked like bulls with smoke coming out of their nostrils, looking at you, like thinking about how they're going to kill you. And I went all hyper, like, hey, man, watching the show? And nobody was quite, they were looking at the screens. I went, oh. I started to back up, sort of dance, see ya, bye. They were all business, right? Yeah. I was told that those guys are the most badass mofos. And if they're deployed, that means everybody's going to get shot, except for the president and the first lady. You don't want to... Oh, my God. They were like the most top heavy, you know, security <laughs> possible. Don't mess with them, yeah. And the Rolling Stones, well, the Rolling Stones, it wasn't the, the same exact moment. But um, I don't know how I tied the two together in the book, but it must have been the same year. Uh, yeah, uh, Don was uh, a guy who hires me to work with him, one of my best friends now. Told me to come to the studio. And I said, man, I'm kind of tired. I. I've been working all day in Jackson Brown's studio and blah, 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 blah. He says, man, the Stones are here. I went, see ya. I came right to the studio. And um, that's where Jim Keltner um, introduced me to Charlie. And he said, you know, Charlie, we should have Kenny play on your record in the back. He he was working in the studio. Uh, Do this percussion on top of your drumming and, it was kind of a jazzy record, and and me and Jim would do weird percussion stuff. And I I do weird stuff, not traditional. And Charlie loved me. And he asked me to come back again. That's awesome. Well, the next day I came back, and the next day, and the next day I did this for two weeks. And one day I walk in. There's Keith, Ronnie Wood, uh, Mick Jagger, everybody. I mean, Keith. What was happening is Keith was. This is the Bridge of the Babylon record. Keith was would be recording in one room. Charlie was doing a separate project there, but Charlie would be playing in the room with Keith when they needed him. But then Mick would come in on other days. And Don was funny. He said, you know, the Rolling Stones aren't the Rolling Stones unless all of you are playing together. (laughs) So that's what happened. And man, I'll tell you what, Mick Jagger, and I'd played on two solo records of Mick Jagger's or parts of them, me and Jim Keller. And, um, Mick Jagger had so much respect for Charlie I, that it was four in the morning. 
and we would record from 12 midnight till about five or six in the morning. Mind you, I had to be at rehearsal at 12 noon with John Fogarty. I'd go 12 to six with John Fogarty and seven to 11 with Roy Bitten from Springsteen's band. He was producing an artist. And then from midnight to five or six in the morning, the Rolling Stones. That was two weeks. And I, I think it was John Bon Jovi on the, uh, on the weekend for a solo record. It was like <laughs> just another couple of weeks of my life. You know, it was like unbelievable. But Mick Jagger respected Charlie so much. He told me I was doing this little thing on a gourd with a brush, like a hi-hat thing. And Mick came up and he said, you know, I love what you're doing, but don't get in the way of the feel of Charlie's hi-hat. I went, that is so awesome that the lead singer has that much care and understands how important his drummer is. This is unbelievable. The lead singer of the one of the greatest, biggest bands ever. And he respects Charlie Watts' hi-hat. And he was right. Incredible. I mean, what other drummers, Kenny, besides probably you and Jim Keltner, can say that they've played both with the Beatles and the Stones? Because last interview, yeah. we talked about you playing with yeah. four, Ringo and Paul, and all together. That's just uh, unbelievable. So. I know. There's a picture of uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, and Johnny Cash. And it's a famous picture. And the thing is, I looked at it and I went, I've played with everybody but Elvis. I mean, <laughs> right? It's incredible. So, it's, what, you know, it was would he be the only one, whether living or past, that you didn't get a chance to play with, or were there other musicians you'd still love to be able to play with? Elvis. Uh, well, you know, of course, anybody great, I would love to play with, just to be in their in their presence. To, you know, it's just so exciting it doesn't even have to be a musician it could be well meeting i met four presidents i mean it's just it's amazing you know to meet people that have have had that kind of life experience and just be around them i'm you know i'm just interested to see what they have to say and what they know because they've seen things that i haven't but um uh i would uh, probably the the biggest one would be I wish I could have played with Jimi Hendrix. Oh, man. That would be so awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I wish I could have met Keith Moon. Yeah. You know, yeah. I wish I could have met, uh, you know, John Lennon. You know, but, uh, you know, I would love to have played with The Doors, you know, with Jim Morrison there. You know, people that really were the real deal, you know. And, you know, if, speaking of that, I saw it was either on Facebook or Instagram. You were learning uh, songs. I think it might have been for the – you were recording something, the Rangers maybe, and you were learning yeah. Good Times, Bad Times. Yeah. And you talked about how that is a bitch of a song. Can you tell us a little bit about what your process was? I mean, that is a hard song by Bonham, right? Absolutely. It's iconic. And I made a commitment to myself that if I couldn't deliver – the 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 you know perfection then i have no right to deliver it and so i was prepared to pull the plug so you know with my method and intense you know uh work ethic i i what i did was i i i uh, uh alfred publications did a, a rendition of of good times bad times plus i had my i had written the whole thing out myself so essentially what i was trying to do is play exactly what John Bonham did. 
that's what I tried to do. Uh, I'd say I was like 99%. I mean, I, I know I did because, and I broke it into three sections, uh, you know, uh, the whole first section and the solo section, and then the, the, the ending section, which has the, the famous two measure uh, triplets, 16th note triplets. And I took a 20, um, a 26, uh, was it a 26 or 28 bass drum? 20, I think it's 26 Ludwig by 14. Two heads with no hole in it, tuned it up real high like Bonham did. And so the beater would come off the head. And essentially what I'm trying to do is get each stroke of those triplets to sound equal. Not da-da-da-da, but da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I can't even say it, but da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, um, and I, you know, I had the hi-hat going eight notes, the hi the cowbell eight notes. I did it live, man. There were no edits. It was just, I, when I did it in sections and then we would then, I guess, well, how did I do that? I did it in sections and then I did it all the way through. I guess you could call it an edit in that we took one section to the other, but it wasn't like I punched in or fixed anything. You know, and, um, you know, I spent, you know, I practiced it hard and intensely. And and then we I did four other songs. Two other songs were Almond Brothers songs. So I had my one of my best friends, a great drummer, Sean Pelton, play the other drum parts. Now, the way this came about is Sean had been doing what they do is let me start this. The New York Rangers, Madison Square Garden, iconic building. Uh, So it's a rock and roll musicians dream to play there which i have but what happened was i get a with the idea is that after in between periods they have a live band playing up top with the, it's the organ player you know he's up there you can fit a bass player and a guitar player up there but no drums so they have drummers do tracks so sean felton has been doing it and the guy that handles the entertainment in the Madison Square Garden is a, a guy I grew up with, wow. Mark Allman. And Mark called me up and says, hey, Kenny, man, it's Mark. How you doing? Hey, you know, we've had Sean do this, but we'd love to, have, you know, have you do some tracks. And then you and Sean do two together, you know, the Almond Buzzing. I went, absolutely. So what I did was I did it. I had the organ player send me the click track and their arrangements, and I did it. For example, good times, bad times, they double the solo. Where they do it twice as long as as Led Zeppelin. So what happened is that I would do these tracks, then we mixed it with my engineer and me would mix it because we had to consider that these drum tracks were being blasted from the ceiling at Madison Square Garden. What are the acoustics in that room? And it's got to be it's got to be ambient, but it's got to be articulate too. And we mixed it, and they loved it, and it, that was a that was a new experience for me playing drums for the New York Rangers, and I'm back in Madison Square Garden. And I actually was there working on a a, a TV show, and uh, I I got done with rehearsal in time to go with Sean Pelton, sitting right in the middle of the uh, you know at the fifth, what would be the fifty yard line of a football game, and, and you know the, our names come up on the screen. We're sitting there drinking beers and. Oh, it's unbelievable. And it sounded great. Awesome. Worldwide, Kenny, is what you are. So let me ask you one last question about that bottom song, just for the gear geek in me. You had to tune up your bass drum uh, high like Bonham did. 
Did you do anything with your pedal? And if not, what's your pedal? Where's your spring setting at? No, I didn't do it with my pedal. What I did have to do is play a little bit lighter to get things a little bit more, to get the, the, the evenness on the bass drum strokes. You know, I had to, um, if I, if I play, if you, the more strokes I play on my bass drum, the lighter I will play to get that evenness. Otherwise, the last note is going to be the loudest. And I didn't want to have that samba sound. So I, I just had to tell myself to play a little bit lighter. And when I do play multiple strokes, uh, I have to drop my heel more. The more strokes I do, the more I drop my heel. But I use a molar technique. So I drop my heel. I, I come down like like that. Uh, I, You know, yeah. I mean, because at that speed, yeah. unless I was to play with my heel all the way down, but that's too soft for me. Where you could do like wicked fast, like Buddy Rich could do like, you know, with his heel down and just go, you know, play those triplets. You know, I, I never saw how Bonham did it. Um, I'd be curious. But Bonham had an unusually exceptional foot. You know, he just, he just was extraordinary. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, and I use a Tama Iron Cobra, which is one of the greatest pedals out there. I actually use a wood beater, which is heavier than the light. A lot of people go into these lighter beaters, but I like to feel the weight of a traditional size beater. And then I'm instead of felt, I go to wood, which makes it even makes it very articulate. Can we talk about music tears a little bit more? And yeah. is that similar to, you know, I think about Clapton and his rehab crossroads. Uh, tell us some more about music cares and your role in it, please. Well, music cares is an event that is a, a fundraiser for, to help musicians, um, you know, that are uh, trying to go through rehab with a uh, drug and alcohol uh, consumptions. And, and even furthermore, they, they help people maybe, you know, in their older years, if they, they're down out and broke, help them with uh, maybe their mortgage and, or not mortgage, but a place, rent and utilities and food or whatever. But uh, you get the drift. And uh, people in the industry come, and it's quite expensive to go there to get a plate. But it's very cool because you'll see everybody. I mean, in the higher, all the executives from the labels are there, all the big producers, the big engineers, uh, obviously people who can afford to go, songwriters, musicians. And I've, I've done it three times. And, you know, one time when I was doing the honoring Bob Dylan, uh, there were two stages, and I'd go from stage one to two, right through the audience. I'd hear people yelling out my name, "Hey, Kenny, how you doing?" I look over there. There's the you know the president of Sirius Radio. What's happening? There's you know a manager of like you know twenty bands, and that it, it's so cool. It's great to be seen, and you know uh, around your peers, and um, you know all you know all fat fa you know facets of the industry. Um, it's Don was is the guy who's the, the musical director who's hired me every time. And uh, he's one of my dearest friends and old, now becoming one of my oldest friends. And um, this year we're going to honor Fleetwood Mac and a lot of them. I know Keith Urban's doing it. I uh, can't remember. I think, uh, oh, I can't remember the list. exactly. a lot of like amazing artists. Um, uh, the girl Lord, she's doing it. Uh, I can't remember. There's a lot. I mean, it could be anybody. It yeah. could be anybody imaginable. You know? And when does that happen, Kenny? When can we look for that? Well, I'm going to film it on the 20, 
6th of January, but it won't come out until after. It won't be live. Got it. They'll edit it. And is that part of the NAM show as well? No, it's part of, it's the day before Grammys. It's always the day before Grammys. It's associated with the Grammys. Got it. Because that's how you get everybody shows up to the Grammys. You just, the day before, bam. That's right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Don Waz as well. You've mentioned him a couple of times. Obviously, legendary producer. Can you say a little bit more about him and you connecting with him, what you've learned from him, and uh, uh, just more about Don? Well, Don is definitely one of my favorite people, top five in my life. And um, he's not only a great musician, but he's like a, an amazing human being, kind of like almost like a Buddha. He's gentle. He, he's gentle, but he still has, uh, he knows what he wants. Uh, he hires great musicians and lets them do their thing. He's not a control freak. He's, I've never seen him get angry. Uh, he's always uh, very, very positive. He's, he's kind. Uh, it's, it's almost unusual in any business. It's a very, very special person. And, uh, you know, he he he, t- he tells me what he wants, but he likes to let me do my own thing. That's why he hires me. It's am- it's amazing. Yeah, that is special, right? No question. Yeah, I had to just turn down a gig with him. It was like you know telling your mom that you're not coming home for a year or something. Right. It's horrible. When's the, when's the last time you did a project with him? Oh, recently I just did. Um, what did I just do? I did. Um, See, I didn't. Uh, it was in October. I did uh, the Kenny Rogers and honoring Kenny Rogers, the Bricks Brickstone uh, Arena in Nashville. I feel like I did one other thing. I saw him at, on Christmas time at, at a party. Let's let's switch gears a little bit. I I read more of your book. If you haven't picked it up, Sex Drums and Rock and Roll: The Hardest Hitting Man in Show Business. Uh, your forward, by the way, is no slouch in the music community. Neil yeah. Peart did your forward, Kenny. Talk a little bit about Neil Peart and uh, your relationship with him and what he's meant to you as a drummer. Well, Neil, I, I met him when I was doing the uh, recording with the Buddy Rich Big Band for a tribute to Buddy in the early 90s. And uh, I was the last guy last day because I was so busy recording all over the place. I was in Nashville. That was the week I was doing uh, Philadelphia with with the Cinderella. I was in Nashville with Hank Jr. I think I was in Memphis and I was in Canada. And I barely, I didn't, I was scared I wasn't going to make it to the session. I was the last guy last day. Walk in, Neil is very, very nice, very kind. And um, and then we didn't get to hang too much. But what happened was I was recording later that year in Montreal, in a very faint, outside of Montreal. Very famous studio, which sadly is now gone, called Morin Heights, where Rush would do records up there. I did a lot of records with different artists up there, mostly Canadian. And, uh, you know, Bon Jovi produced Aldo Nova, which was a big uh, uh, Canadian artist. So we did it there. I did uh, Corey Hart, who grew up in Montreal, up there. Um, anyway, I'm up there doing something with Corey Hart. He's producing an artist, a female artist. And all of a sudden, Neil Pert pops his head in. He says, "Oh, Kenny, can I talk to you?" And he says, "Listen, I'm, 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 I was, I'm mixing the Buddy Rich tracks, but uh, there's this one song called Pick Up the Pieces' by Average White Band, and and um, 
uh, what's his name, didn't want to take a, uh, a drum solo uh, on it. And um, I'm spacing out for some reason. Um, Steve Ferroni didn't want to take a drum solo. He's just like, the groove, I feel like it needs something. So you want to overdub percussion. Well, I've had a lot of experience playing percussion because in Mellicamp band, I had to do a lot of percussion. A lot of weird building tracks up from the big bottom up, sometimes doing percussion first, then drums. So Neil and I started with the low tones and then moved up to the middle tones and the medium tones and the medium high tones and the high tones. And we spent a long time jamming together, playing. We called ourselves the Bald, bald Bongo Brothers or something. I don't know. I don't know, it was something crazy. And afterwards, I got into one of his sports cars, drove to his house, and uh, we drank some scotch and uh, listened to the uh, mixes of the Buddy Rich Big Band, hung out, and he showed me where he, it was an island. Uh, I could, we were up on a hill in the woods. It was beautiful. It was an island down there. And he said he'd go over there. Um, by himself or with his daughter or something. His mom, his wife was in the house. They would do like Morse code or signals back to each other. You know, so we became real close uh, ever since then. And when sometimes I'd be in his bus driver, Rush's bus driver became uh, Melissa Etheridge's bus driver. And we were on tour uh, one time in Toronto and I had dinner with uh, all the guys in Rush. Amazing. <laughs> you know, it was really cool. And, you know, of course, Neil is like, extraordinary extraordinary drummer and incredible writer too yeah i mean he, he's an, uh, an amazing mix of not many drummers write the music or write the songs right yeah he's one of them tell me about your you know you mentioned buddy rich too i mean let's talk about him for a second obviously probably the widely regarded as the best drummer of all time um how did you sort of deal with playing some of his music paying tribute to him? Well, first of all, there was there's nobody like anybody, of course. But Buddy Rich was, you can't put it into words, it was off the hook extraordinary. It, it was, it was a, a natural ability that was uncanny. And uh, that's all I can say. I mean, it, it, it's so obvious that he's in a class of his own. And... um it was as if he didn't, he was born playing that great. You know, he didn't have to practice, you know, that kind of thing. Playing with the Buddy Rich Big Band was probably the most scary session. It was the scariest session I've ever done in my life. First of all, they asked me at first, Kathy Rich asked me to play like some rock songs. And I went, no way. I mean, I, there's no way I was going to play. Because the rock songs that Buddy Rich did weren't the coolest. I decided I'd play Big Swing Face because it was a medium tempo song. Of course, I wrote it out because I didn't have time to memorize it because I was doing sessions. And uh, I wanted to do Straight No Chaser, but I was too, a little bit scared about that. He calls me up. I'll never forget where I was. I was doing drum clinics. That's what I was doing. Yeah, I was in, and I'm now, I know exactly who I was with, Jim Heath from Tama. And I get a call and she said, Ken, you know, everybody's doing two songs. How would you like to do Straight No Chaser? I went, oh my God, I would love to. But I don't know, man. I don't know. It's pretty it's insane. And I said, well, I'll do it, but I have the option to, like, nix it. I walk into that studio. First of all, it was the first time I'd ever seen a Tama Star Classic kit. I'd been playing the Art Star, a total different beast. So I had to learn how to tune it right there on the spot. The clock is ticking. Neil's going, come on, let's go. And 
the the uh, the ring uh, the uh, we call it the uh, the thing the clamps that would be uh, uh, the rim system that would hold the drum. Sure. They had a 15 inch for a 12 inch. Oh no! What are you gonna do? I right. just bent, I bent it. I just <laughs> bent it to shape and put it on there. That's great. And uh, the bottom line is that the band was extremely intimidating from my perspective. I walked in, they looked at me like I was the janitor, or at least that's what I thought. And when I had to discuss, um, they didn't know me. It wasn't like, you know, Steve Gadd walking in. <laughs> so I walk in and we start going over to the form and they had different form. And I'm like, that made me nervous. Oh my God. So I'm making adjustments. We start doing big swing face. And after four takes, they were so loud. It was unbelievable. It was so loud. I mean, they were facing me. There's no baffles except for the piano uh, and bass. They were in their own little compartments. So um, after four takes, I go back in the listen, thinking, you know, I'm going to go out and do four more or 12 more or 18 more, whatever. Neil Percy says, that's great, man. Great job. I said, nah, I could play a little bit better. He said, well, that's all you get. I went, what do you mean that's all I get? Yeah, you only get four takes. I went, Nobody told me that. Wish you told me. I would have like gone like, oh my god, this is my last chance. And I just felt like I could have had more, a little bit more lilt swing. They brought Freddie Gruber and said, "Freddie, what do you think?" Freddie goes, "The kid sounds good. It's good." I'm like, "Oh man!" And now I'm gonna do straight no chaser. And I'm like, I'm like bull, ready to just go, and um. I went, you got four chances. And I don't know which take it was. I don't even know if I did four takes. But there was a take that was blazing, and I played it wicked fast. And I remember thinking, this sounds amazing. I don't, who's playing? This is not me. And I remember saying to myself, I looked at my hands, and I went, well, I'm reading. I'm reading and playing. And it sounds so good. I went, well, Who's ever playing, man, don't get in their way because they're doing a pretty good job. It's like I didn't want to psych myself out and stop and go, whoa, get freaked out by this weird out-of-body experience. Some people call that the flow. And uh, so, and at the end, I had a drum solo that was unworked out. You know, you you do a drum solo, you can always drop one beat or something goes out of time or the groove. I It just all flowed. I have no regrets, and that's rare. And you're doing this in the jazz record, and I'm a rock drummer at this time. So I was extremely happy. It was a, a very rewarding uh, session. And, you know, I, you know, I, I seem – I'm not a fight-or-flight guy. I'm a fight-or-fight guy. And I seem to – I'm not intimidated or, 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 or paralyzed to be creative when I'm in a fearful situation. And uh, I controlled that situation the best I could, and the results were great. And so, I, you know, what can I say? I was really happy. That's how you moved through it, and you got the Freddie Gruber seal of approval, and anytime you get that, it's all good, right? I guess, man. I still wish I could have done it again. <laughs> well, we'll work on getting you another take on that. So. Well, you know what? Recently, it was last year at this time, me and Dave Wackel both sat in with the Buddy Rich Big Band at Catalina's in L.A. I was like, oh, my God, because ever since then, I've been using that Straight No Chaser tune on my drum clinics or when I speak. I use that as my finale. 
And it's like, I feel like I, I own that song now. It's me. I love it. I play it with so much zest. I, I love that song. And um, I, I have to admit, I played it too pretty fast. I don't think, see, New York, they like it wicked fast because it's New York. L.A., they like it a little bit more laid back. And I was playing it New York style. It was blazing. When I got done, I looked over the trumpet playing with, like, that was awesome. But the sax players, I don't think we're happy because they have to play. They're like, but it was great. Yeah. It's so cool playing with that band. Yeah. Well, and Dave Weckl is an amazing drummer. Oh, my well. God. Yeah. Well, I love playing. See, I don't, when I was younger, I'd be, when I did clinics with a guy like Dave Weckl or Thomas Lang, I'd be, oh, my God. Now it's like, <laughs> can't touch them. I mean, they're like, they're so great at, I just love watching them play because they're so amazing. And I just do my thing, which is completely different from theirs. We both have, we're both, we've all become specialists at what we do. Yes. Thomas Lang, I usually just jump on him, get him that headlock and beat him up because I said, it's not fair. How can you play like that? Right. He's a machine, isn't he? He's incredible. So. Yeah. A robot. Right. No question. Right. But with, with some feel, right? That's amazing. Oh, yeah, man. No, these guys. Uh, I, I wish I wasn't so busy. I could hang with, see these guys more often. But one of the things that you're busy about is you are writing the second book now. Can we talk about that? And that's going to be the follow-up to Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. Is there a title yet, or are we waiting for that? Well, the, I have a working title. There's no question that, well, I'm thinking that it, it you know, my book ends, my, my autobiography ends with a, with a life lesson I learned from my Uncle Nat. And it was what he said. He asked me what the most valuable thing in life is. And, of course, as a little kid, I, I looked at it. He was a, a very, he was a fighter pilot, gold gloves boxer, uh, self-made millionaire, super, super successful at boats and planes. So I figured money, and I was only 12. I looked at his watch, and he was doing one-handed push-ups. This is what he was smoking a cigar. During Thanksgiving, in my room, he was a tough son of a bitch. This guy, he would, he, I mean, when you hit him, you hurt your hands. This guy was steel. And so he said, hey, while well, I was doing the push-ups, saying, you know what the, you, hey, you know what the most important thing in life is, kid? He stands up, and I'm like, scared to say the wrong thing. I see a gold watch, so I went, money? He went, no, stupid. He hits me in the shoulder and almost knocks me over. He says, time is the most important thing. Time. When you're 12 years old, what do you care about time? I thought I was just thinking, I want to go out and play with my brother. You're scaring me. <laughs> you know? And so what I started realizing, well, maybe you got to be on time. It stuck with me because something, he hit a nerve that my deeper spirit understood what he was saying. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, you got to be on time. He's saying, yeah, be on time. Yeah, like a soldier on time for things. Whatever. Then later on, I thought, oh, my God, he knew I was going to be a drummer. He was trying to be cool. Time is the most important thing, kid. You got to play in time. And then when I became an adult, <laughs> which was only last year, I realized what he was talking about. He was sharing the, the value of, you know, time on this planet. And, you know, he's a guy who's an entrepreneur. And every minute and every second was so valuable to him. And he was starting to feel the value of time he wanted to pass it on to me. And so I've thought about calling my book time as a pickup from the last book. 
live your life, live your life loud. And, you know, the first line is basically, are you living your life loud? Are you dying on the vine? Because most people are dying on the vine. If you do nothing, you get nothing. Your success will not fall out of the sky. I guarantee you, because the guys that are self-disciplined and working hard will walk right over you and past you while you're waiting for it to happen. People are taking action. And that's basically what the whole book is about and how to be, how I was able to record on uh, over 300 million records sold, uh, toured with all these bands and TV and have had a, a, you know, a career for four decades and it's still going. I'm not the most talented drum in the world. It's a package. It's not how good you are. It's things like communication skills and teamwork and the ability to get along and, and, and being prepared and, having your your head in the right space and being able to adapt there's a million things that go into being mentally physically and emotionally healthy i talk about all of this and it's basically that i wanted to have in in my autobiography but they already had cut out 300 pages of sessions and you know things like what happened with me and kim uh, uh what didn't happen with me and uh, cameron diaz and stuff like that they left they left that out okay. so no room for this so this book is is a self help book, and so yeah, it's it's these books are hard to write. They take up a lot of time. So quite a process, right? I mean, what how how do you? Well, I mean, I um, I'm um, I edit every page myself over and over and over again. Then I give it to the editor, and you know, uh, and then I edit what they do. It just never ends. It's like making a record. So it's a pretty heavy process, but um, I think I'll be, I'll stop after this. This will be, whew, it's pretty intense. It takes up a lot of time. Yeah. So we, we may not get the bookshelf full of books, but this, this will be the good uh, sequel. Yeah. This will be sequel. I don't know what I would write about next. So right now this is it. <laughs> well, and maybe, maybe it hasn't come to you yet. It ties in with, uh, you know, I do a lot of speaking and I have a whole show. It ties into both books are in the show, basically. It's sharing, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a musician or, a, or an athlete or a businessman or a teacher, or a, uh, you know, a, a painter. It doesn't matter. It's the same basic principles to be the best that you can be. My teacher, George Gaber, when I was at Indiana University, said, man, you don't know if you're going to be a famous basket weaver or whatever it is. Your skills that you're learning here, the self-discipline and the hard work is going to make you who you are when you leave here. And he said, man, you may someday be a famous rock and roll drummer. And I told him, I hope not. I'm right? not kidding. Yeah, I said that because at that point I was trying to get into a symphony orchestra or, you know, and I devoted, you know, I mean, in five years, I maybe took two years off from practicing. That's it. I was, Every summer, I was either at the Aspen School of Music or at Tanglewood, which was the number two, top two number, uh, two top two music schools in the summer in the United States, if not the world. And um, you know, uh, it took me four years to get into Tanglewood. You know, they only take seven percussionists in the whole world. And um, you know, uh, and I got into the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. I mean, it was like that was where I was headed. You know, and. Uh, he was right, man. You don't know where you're going to be. You don't know what's going to happen. I look what happened. He, I became the guy I said I would never be. It's amazing. Yeah. And so your speaking gigs, tell us a little bit about that and what you focus on and how can somebody get a hold of you to hire you for a speaking gig? 
Well, for a speaking gig, you can uh, hire me by just going to my website, www.kennyaroff.com. And there's a form you fill out. And, you know, um, you know, I got something coming up with Marathon Oil. And then I got another thing with me and six speakers. I just did something in Jamaica with 20 speakers called A-Fest. It's pretty extraordinary. You know, I'm, you're dealing with scientists and, you know, people completely out of the music. They have nothing to do with music. And the speech, I have two basic speeches. One is a teamwork speech, which is demonstrating how to serve, obviously as a musician, serve the song, serve the team. Leave your ego at the door. If I, everybody in that room has an ego, otherwise you wouldn't be in there. But the bottom line is the purpose, and I may have said this in my last uh, interview, the purpose of a drummer when you're recording art, when you're recording and making records, to, to get the song on the radio would be number one. It's not about you. It's not about your beats so much. It's about the song. It's about serving the artist, the band, the producer, the record label. You're serving. You are a servant. You're in the service business. So no matter how many gold, platinum records I've been on, which is now 1,300 or diamond, when somebody hires me, I'm still a drummer serving a purpose. And so that's a big part of it and being creative and always trying to be great. You know, and, and that sounds so easy, always trying to be great. But, you know, bands like the Beatles and Zeppelin would never have kept coming up with great, great, great records everyone getting better and better if they didn't keep practicing, keep trying to be better. And if you, I, I mean, John Mellencamp said to me once, and my point is you can be fired if you don't keep trying to be great. Just because you get a gig doesn't mean it's one, it's hard to be successful. It's harder to stay successful. And if you lose focus, you will be, you'll be out of business like that. And I can name corporations that were the biggest thing two years ago and they're like falling to the wayside now because they just they, they they didn't keep doing what they were doing that got them where they are or were so you know um so in that spirit then kenny what are you working on right now what are you practicing with your playing well what i have right now because i'm so busy i have this thing called functional practicing routine it's a 30 minute workout of design specifically for myself that makes me sound amazing every day I'm playing exactly the things I need that I will play when I get on stage that I need to make sure I address. Specific single stroke roles, you know, all four limbs going at the time, double stroke, double, you know, bass drum stuff. Whenever I'm practicing my hands, my feet are doing something. When I remember focusing on my feet, my hands are doing stuff. I, I, it's, the, it's a lot of it's based out of the first 13 lines of stick, stick control, but I reverse line 11 and 12. So you don't have seven rights in a row. Um, uh, you know, if I do molar techniques, all these, I do specific fills, specific, like I might do, the, you know, the triplets where I go left hand on the high tom, right hand on the floor tom, uh, right foot, the bottom thing, except I lead my left hand like bottom did. You know, I have exercises that incorporate that. I've exercises that incorporate sex tuplets, you know, four with the hands, two with the feet. Uh, I practice double, stro- double bass drums, but I'm always playing grooves that I will use in a show. It's called functional practicing. Not one note is wasted. I do not have time to dilly-dally. And sometimes, you know, I definitely do it twice in a day when I'm on show day. Sometimes I do it three times. I do it the third time before I go to bed. So I wake up warmed up. That's what I focus on. Other than that, I focus on the the music that I have to play, you know, for the gig. Is that practice routine in your book or will it be in the book coming up or is that just yours? 
That's just mine. I mean, that that's not, the, the the books I write are not drum books. They're more like the autobiography and a self help book. And then the 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 practice routine you can get if you take a lesson with me. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> great. So kennyaronoff.com, hire him for a lesson. When can we expect the second book coming? Uh, it'll come out this year. It will. Yeah. It, it'll definitely do. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. I love asking artists about, you know, because instruments are so personal and everybody has their own thing that they love. I know you play Tama drums and Zildjian cymbals. Is that right? Tama drums, Zildjian cymbals. I have my three signature snare drums uh, and I use two of them 99% of the time, which is the five by 14, uh, you know, version. It's basic, and the six and a half by fourteen version. It's basically a Black Beauty. I have a die cast hoop on top for attack and centering the sound. Triple flange on the bottom. Die cast on top and bottom chokes the drum a little bit. If you get my signature snare now, it does come with die cast top and bottom. Um, that it's just what the factory did. But I I do triple flange bottom, die cast on top, tight on top, opens up at the bottom. I use uh, Evans drum heads. The greatest combination on every snare drum I have is a heavyweight on top and the hazy 300 on the bottom. I tried everything. I, it's, it hugely makes a difference. Yes, and the, tell the, us engineer, the engineers both took me a year to make that switch. The engineers both live and in the studio heard a significant difference, especially with that head combination. They went, they just said they got more frequency range. And they could do more with their what they do than they could with any other combination I had. Right. Now I didn't use every combination in the world. Uh, I mean, I used every combination, you know, with uh, Evans and another company I used to be with, and uh, this just blew everything away. And uh, um, yeah, I have my own signature uh, stick that Vic Firth made, basically a five B extreme length and and thickness, but I have a, a rock profile. Yeah. I got my own signature cowbell from Meinl. When I was in Indiana, they thought all the cows would buy my cows' bells. Anyway, it's great. It's also like a black beauty. It's very warm, but obviously attacks. Uh, I play Yamaha DTX uh, electronic drums. Um, let's see, what am I leaving out? Zildjian cymbals, of course. That's them. Um, I use uh, in my studio. I have all BAE. Uh, you know, recording gear, which is the top of the lines, basically Neve 1073s, 1084s, and the three uh, 12s, which are like uh, APIs. Um, I use uh, Shure microphones, Mojave microphones, Warrior microphones the most uh, in my in my setup. Yeah, because you've got your own studio, right? Uh, Uncommon Studios in LA that people can come in and hire you or just yeah, yeah. hire your studio time, right? Yep, they send me files or come in. So if you go on my website, www.uncommonstudios with an S, la.com. And the music, I haven't, I haven't updated the music for about four years. I apologize. It's all right. You got to get a person, got to get a, an assistant on, on that. Case. I do have an assistant, but I have to get one on that. Right, right. Yeah, well, I've seen you in the studio, some of your on social media. You're, it's amazing. Is it a, it's like a green sparkle kit, if I'm not Yeah, mistaken. the green sparkle star classic. It's amazing. Uh, I just, it's just, you can do anything with that kit. It's amazing. I have a Babinga kit. I have a star kit, birch kit, but this, the, the matte maple kit. And that went on seven tours, so it kind of aged. Right. It's amazing. Like a fine wine, though, right? It's a, yeah. It's a 24, 
12 inch tom, I use different depths, 12 inch, 10 inch, and then 16, 18 floor tom. Sometimes I go 12 thir- or 13, 12. I always reverse my toms, which I've been doing since 1983. And, you know, again, it's so personal with instruments and all the companies are amazing. The drum companies, cymbal companies. Why Tama for you, Kenny? What was, what's that attraction there? Why'd you land with them? Well, they wrote a check for $10 million and I went, you know what? Let me think about this. <laughs> um, I went, yeah, cur- sure. No, no, um, well, at the time, I mean, back in the, uh, Early 80s, I mean, Billy Cobham was playing Tama, uh, Elvin Jones was playing Tama, Olivia DeVito, uh, uh, Charlie, not Charlie Watts. Um, uh, and I, their hardware was like, it was a whole revolutionary. It was amazing. It was Yamaha, then Tama came out with hardware. And somebody who worked at a, the uh, percussion center who owned it and worked there in uh, Fort Wayne told me he thought Tama was the best drums on the market. So I looked into them. I was them and Gretsch. And um, Gretsch, I, I, every time I went anywhere when I was on tour with Mellencamp Band, I could never see Gretsch supplies and stuff in all these stores. And I felt, and Tama was everywhere. I felt like I would get the support I would need. And um, and I loved the sound of the drums. They were amazing. And so uh, I went with them, and I, I liked the way the company worked. And um it was like a, it's a family run company. And, uh, I, I've been with them for 30, it may be coming up to 35 years. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's a great fit and obviously incredible sounding drums. So. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's working. Unbelievable. So let's talk a, a little bit also, uh, hired gun, the movie on Netflix. If you haven't seen it yet, check it out. This is a, uh, well, you tell the story about what this movie is because you're in it and you kill it in there, Kenny. It's amazing. Well, it's supposed to be about the, the, the hired gun, the people that are hired to play in big bands and do sessions. Um, um, seemed like it focused a little bit more on the uh, live thing. Um, but uh, I'm supposed to start a documentary this year, which will talk about the session thing a lot heavier. It won't be. But anyway, the point is, it's about people that are hired, the best musicians hired to play with artists. And, and, and Alice Cooper's interviewed and talks about it. Um, uh, Billy Joel talks about it. Um, uh, Rob Zombie talks about it uh, in the movie. And uh, there are a lot of stories. The movie, I went with the, the CEO of, uh, of Kodak Film, and he sees documentaries all the time, made documentaries. He was impressed with the flow and the way the documentary was done. There's some sad stories. There were some funny stories. And uh, as, as a piece, it was done really, really well. It would be very enlightening to see what really goes on in these in these situations, you know, uh, on the road and in the studio. Um, but that's it. That's pretty much it. Yeah, know? You did an amazing job on it. And, you know, what's the – What's the best thing about being a hired gun? What's the most challenging thing about being a hired gun? Well, the best thing about being a hired gun is that uh, I like is that I, 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 there's so much variety when you work with different people. I love that. I love the variety. Uh, you don't, you, you never get bored with who you're working with because you're constantly changing it. You're grateful to come back to the people you worked with. It's a very, it creates a very positive, environment um the downside is sometimes it's like you know there is like you're in and you're out you know you don't you, you might want to stay longer you might want to be in 
the situation longer, you know, but it, it's not what's called for. You know, you, they need you for one day and that's it. Is it, is it okay to ask around? Cause you know, the first time that I saw you was live last year at the NAM show and that was the sessions.org panel. And that's all about the business of music. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about how do you take care of yourself business wise as a session player, as a hired guy? Well, I mean, you got, you got to be very, you got to come in with a game no matter what. Every day is a Super Bowl to me. Every time the red light comes on, it's a Super Bowl. So, um, for me, um, it's very, um, it's, uh, very important to be mentally, physically, emotionally healthy. It's a very, it's very important to be prepared. It's very important to have a great attitude when you're in, a session, you know, and you're, I mean, you, I've worked with like some guys that are not very nice and you have to maintain because I realized your attitude can bring the session down or lift it up. That's simple, you know? Uh, so, you know, I realized that I can affect that whole room. I can motivate the room as Don was said in the book. You see, I've saved sessions for him by just my attitude. You know, one of the bigger things about being a session player or even, you know, on the road is it's not about you, man. You got to is we all have egos. That's what makes us great. But it's got to remember you're working for somebody. You know, good advice is that the artist that's friendly to you, the, the, the person who hires you, they like you, but you guys are not equal. They are hiring you and they can fire you. And it's their rules. It may not seem fair, but that's the way it is. It's their rules. So when a guy's standing next to you, got his arm around you, taking a picture, and he's your boss, and he's laughing, you all have a good time, you, you do the wrong thing, that pisses him off, and he can say, you know what, we're not working together anymore. And you're stuck there going, like, wait a minute, I, don't I thought we were friends. You're friends, but you're not equals. That's a very heavy advice I could give somebody. That's a great lesson right there, because just like in any other business, they're your boss, right? They're your boss. They they want to get along with you. That doesn't mean that you're equal. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. And I've also heard we were talking that you're also going to be uh, – tell us about more. There's another movie pilot coming up with you and, and your TV stuff on Access TV. What's going on? Well, those are two different things. Access, I was doing an interview for Access for a new show, and they said, you know, you're the most played uh, – artist or musician on access tv you're on tv our tv station more than anybody <laughs> i was like cool that's awesome i love that i like that's cool because i do a lot of tv that like all these tributes the dr john tribute the the, the, the doug the greg allman tribute the uh merle haggard the rod all these tributes end up on access tv i just did uh i went to cabo and played with sammy hagar on his 70th birthday and i played with him a song i recorded in my studio uh, for him and, and DMC from Rum DMC, a duet is badass. It's like Rage Against the Machine meets Zeppelin. And that was filmed and will be on Access TV or was on Access TV. Um, so yeah, um, so that's the Access TV part. But out of the blue, somebody reached out to me from Toronto, a movie director wanted to hire me to, to, to do a scene in a movie he was, uh, he's producing and he basically was making a, a pilot to get the funding to make a full blown movie. And if he said, I, I was so natural and so good. He says, if I get the funding, you're, you're going to be one of the lead 
guys in it. That's fantastic. And and uh, music wise, Kenny, or like acting, like a no, just acting. I mean, I do uh, the scene I did have is a pair of sticks. I'm a guy that's collecting money with another guy, and we work for a boss that's supposedly dead, but he's not dead. That that comes later in the movie. But we're collecting at a racetrack. And as a guy who's betting money and losing, he's trying to make the money that he borrowed yeah. from, uh, you know, Tony. <laughs> it's Tony, you know? So I come up to him and say, you know, hey, listen, you know, mofo, you got to pay up. And I go, like, like in his face. And then, when I, and then when I leave, I do the same thing, like as if I'm beating it on his head. Hey, pay up. And uh, that's the the drum part. The character is in in this business of collecting and working for Tony. <laughs> he really wants to be a drummer, and he does the he plays in clubs. That's so that's why he picked me. And I went, God, couldn't you pick the drummer in Toronto instead of flying it? Yeah, I'm glad he did it. Yeah. The thing that was difficult was that the scene is supposed to be in June, and we were doing it in November in Toronto, so it was 30 degrees. Yikes, cold. Yep. Yeah, I can totally see that though. And that this, hey, this might be a new career path for you or direction. I mean, Stephen Van Zant from Bruce Springsteen, he went on to the Sopranos. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I don't have enough hours in the day, and it's yeah. probably not smart for me to start trying to be devote my entire life to acting. Right, right. right. <laughs> but, exactly. uh, I hope that the movie does happen so that I can experience that, and uh, you know, it's just another aspect of my life journey and it, and it ties in with speaking and I've been on camera so much. It's a, the camera's this close. I didn't even see them. And the interesting thing about the acting thing was, you know, I really got to be friends with this guy. I only had a couple hours to get to know him. Uh, and so that when I was acting with him, I, I felt like I knew him and uh, it was like playing in a band is that sort of, you know, we're working together, give and take. And I truly was like trying to work with him. I was trying to serve him. And he felt that, which helped him act better. It's, once again, we're in the service business. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the, the main lesson with drumming. No question. You mentioned uh, Sammy Hagar going to his birthday. Tell us a little bit about briefly, if you would, you played in Chicken Foot and, you know, a virtuoso band, all of the players, yeah. including yourself. How did you get, how did that even start? Well, Chad Smith couldn't do the chicken. Oh, here's how it started the first time. Chad Smith was on tour during the first chicken foot uh, tour. And I get a call from uh, one of the guys managing him. And um, he uh, said, Mayday, Mayday, Kenny Aronoff, please call me when you wake up. I wake up, I call him, says, I want to talk to you in person. So we met somewhere. He said, look it. Have a situation. You're the only one knows it. Chad Smith popped his bicep muscle on tours in Europe. He's on tour with Chicken Foot. Would you be able to cover for him when they resume? And I said, basically, I said, give me like 30 minutes to figure this out. I had to cancel five things. I would have to cancel five things, sessions, some live dates, all kinds of important things. But I thought it was worth it. And um, he says, do not cancel anything yet. I just want to propose that to the band I have somebody. Sammy decided, and this is what's so cool about Sammy, he'd rather have a one-handed drummer that he gets along with, that's the vibe of the of the band, than to replace him. 
where I could name 99% of the people I work for would replace me in a heartbeat. Because they, yeah, he's a, get rid of him, shoot him. <laughs> it's all about them, remember? Exactly. No, he, he, so then all of a sudden, sadly, uh, a couple years later, he, he dies of cancer. And I'm at a show, and the other manager, I see him, and he's there because it's close to him up Napa Valley, puts his hands on my shoulder, and he goes, Kenny, have you heard what happened? You know, and I went, no. And he told me, I was like, oh, sad. We got past that, and he said, look, Chickenfoot's going out next year, but Chad has to go out with the chili peppers. Chad says, you're the guy. So, um. I went, well, that'd be unbelievable. I said, what's the next step? He says, well, maybe you and Sammy talk. So I arranged a meeting and Sammy calls me up. Basically said, look, there are a lot of drummers that are good and capable of playing in this band. But I want somebody who I get along with because, you know, only on stage for 90 minutes, the other 23 and a half hours, you know, we're around each other, eating together, hanging out. And, you know, Chad, is a tough guy to replace because he's not just a great drummer. He's an incredible personality. Personally, if, 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 if I can't find the right person, I just won't tour. I won't do it. Cause I want to enjoy myself at this point in my life. So I said, look, why don't we get together and just hang out? Mm. See if there's chemistry and play. And, you know, I'll do it for free. I'll come up there and just, you know, play with, I said, look, Chad, is a hard hitter. I'm a hard hitter. Chad's a funky drummer. I'm a funky drummer. Chad's a rock drummer, rock drummer. He's way funnier than me, but I'm better looking. <laughs> I was just joking, but Sammy laughed. I said, so I said, you know, I'm, I, I totally relate to what Chad does. And, you know, I will um, bring my own thing to the table, but yeah, so I went up there and it worked out and that was it. And Chad, Chad was that, I got to give it to Chad. Chad was pushing for me hard. Great. And it worked out. And I, ever since I've played with Sammy on and off and done different gigs with him, I got one coming up. It's uh, something that Matt Storm's doing called Give Back Music to Kids, you know, to children. And they're honoring Sammy. And me and Matt will do double drums all night. That's incredible. Playing together and separately. Wow. Amazing. And so the, just so we include all of the guys in Chicken Foot, and that's a very cool story, Kenny. The drumming community is very close-knit it seems like and support yeah. of each other like that story with chad but you got you and sammy hagar joe satriani on guitar who's amazing who else is in the band michael anthony michael, michael, of course yeah, yeah incredible yeah so what a, what an amazing band so um you've played i was reading in your book you played on letterman probably like countless times 75 times around. Are you serious? 75 times? Well, I subbed. I used to sub for Anton all the time. Amazing. So I'd be there for a week, two weeks, and then I was on there with every Bogarty four times, Mellencamp a couple times. Uh, I mean, just endlessly. I, I was in every every building he was in. That's incredible. As, as a house drummer and as uh, playing with different artists. Wow. So tell, tell us about any kind of anecdotal stories with Letterman and what maybe was a highlight of who you got to play with in addition to obviously Mellencamp and Fogarty, but any guests who came on the Letterman show? Well, hey, Dave was always so cool with me, man. And maybe it was because 
you know, he, he grew up in Indiana and I was in Indiana for 35 years and the Mellencamp, Indiana thing. And, and, um, you know, he, he would always say, Hey, Kenny. And a lot of times he'd say, Hey, to me, after we played with an artist before he talked to the artist, Hey, Kenny, good to see you. Or one time he went up to, came up, I'm beating the crap out of the drum set and he comes up and goes on mic. He says, you know, to Fogarty, John, I don't want to tell you how to run your business, but man, I, I think your drummer's anemic. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And um, and he would throw, uh, sometimes throw footballs at me. One time we were both in L.A. and we were hanging out. And I got on the plane. We were both in first class and I didn't sit next to him because I wanted to give him space. And he afterwards said, why didn't you sit next to me? I said, well, I wanted to give you space. And, oh, man, I felt bad. I was... I was writing meatloaf charts out. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. He's always been very, very nice to me. And as far as the artists, man, I, it's weird. I don't remember the artists as much as I remember having to do stupid human tricks once. The first time I was on the bandstand, first time I did the first show, the very first show I ever did in the original building, where he comes out and right behind the drummer, and he's saying, you got a stupid human trick you know, thing. And I have a script of the whole show and I'm nervous. You know, I got 40 songs he could, that Schaefer could call out or, you know, and I'm just really, you know, got to read and I've got a TV monitor and it's just all new to me. And, um, they're doing the stupid human tricks uh, thing. And, um, the guy tells David what he wants him to do to help out, which is he's going to do a handstand over a mirror and then tie, he wants David to tie a yo-yo to his, toe and then he'll yo-yo okay david said i'm not i'm not tying no no to your toe he says anton does that anton oh it's kenny oh kenny come on up here i'm like me me he goes come on come on i come up there i'm center stage on the david letterman show and the guy does the handstand and then i can't get the thing on his toe because he's moving around david's come on get it on the toe because I got to go to commercial. I finally get it on. Then he says, go back and give me a drum roll. I mean, I felt like I was doing everything wrong. And it, it was it was that one moment I will never forget. No doubt. That, that's a lot of fun right there. And you were doing everything plus the kitchen sink. And now was Letterman a drummer? I know Johnny Carson yeah. was. And so did Letterman play drums as well? Yeah, he'd come over at the... In the for early days when I was something, he'd come over, say, hey, can I play the drums? He'd sit down, you know, bang around, you know. It was unbelievable. Because he always would make a comment about the drummer or the drums after a musical performance. And then he had drum week, of course, uh, the drum solo. It was amazing. Yeah, I, will, I was going like, what about me? Where was I? Right, exactly. And he had a thing with twins. And they didn't, I, I brought my twin on the show once. I have a twin brother, and, and they knew I had a twin. I was like, what? What? Your own drummer has a twin. Right. <laughs> Maybe we'll call Dave and have him on. You could be on his new show, right? So he's got a Netflix Is he getting a new show? Yeah, he has a new Netflix show at this point. I think it's a limited run, six or eight. Uh, oh, episodes. that's awesome. That's not – yeah, that's right. And the, I, I was just I was just realized I saw Dave Grohl dressed up as uh, – uh, David Letterman doing the Jimmy Kimmel show. It's unbelievable. You gotta I, check it out. It's unbelievable. That sounds hilarious. Definitely check that out. Amazing. So, lastly, Kenny, I know you know you've got uh, you're working on the book. You got movies and TV shows. Um, 
you've got the NAM show coming up, I know later this month in January. What's coming up for you in 2018 that you're, if you can tell us, that you're super excited about, that you're working on, in addition to what we've talked about, maybe musically, like who you feel like you're going to play with that uh, is going to be very cool? Well, I forgot to mention, it was uh, the CEO of Kodak Film wants to do a Kenny Aronoff documentary. So we, we may start in film, but it won't be about drumming so much. I don't want to just, everybody knows I'm a drummer. It's more about life lessons and experiences and stuff. I haven't talked to, haven't had that big, long four hour meeting with the director yet, but that's what we're going to do. We'll see. And then the uh, continued sessions, uh, Fogarty and ZZ Top are going out together in May, June. So that'll be fun. Five weeks, you know, playing, you know, Billy Gibbons and I are friends. So that'll be fun. Uh, apparently, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis loves me, so I'll be playing more shows with him. Fogarty shows. Um, I got uh, you know these TV shows I do with Don was that are coming up. I got the Music Cares, and then I'm going to do one in uh, I don't know April maybe or somewhere with a uh, it's a uh, it's something to do with it's with Roseanne Cash and a whole bunch of artists, uh, sort of like an anti-gun thing. So I guess I can't bring my shotgun to that thing. Um, and, uh, and, and, um, let's see. Um, oh, this speaking engagements and, you know, my, my, there's surprises always that happen with me that I can't predict, right. you know? Well, I may, I imagine it's going to be another incredible year. Kenny Aronoff, thank you so much for being on Musicians on the Record. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Kenny Aronoff, for being on Musicians on the Record today. So fun talking with this guy. Such high energy, an incredible drummer. So many stories. I could go on talking with Kenny for hours. Just the stories around Mellencamp, John Fogarty, Melissa Etheridge, working with Don Wass, meeting Neil Peart, being on the David Letterman show. So many fun stories. And have you seen the Hired Gun movie? If you haven't, check it out. Kenny is all over that. It's a really great movie about uh, session musicians and how what that life is like. We'd love to hear what you think about the interview. What was your favorite part? Leave a comment here below and please subscribe to the podcast as well as you can visit us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and our website, musiciansontherecord.com. Let us know whose music story you'd most love to hear, and we will do our best getting those folks on the show, too. And if you're enjoying these interviews, please be a roadie for the show. Share them with someone that you know would love them, too. And if you want to watch all these interviews, in addition to listening to them on the audio podcast, they're on our website at musiciansontherecord.com. You can watch these on video as well. Until next time, let's keep it all about the music. I'm David Ward for Musicians on the Record. Thanks for listening. Music.